morning. How wonderful it is to be able to open up God's Word today. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and stand with me to read God's Word if you can. For the next two weeks, I want us to focus on two foundational truths that Jesus died for our sins and that He rose from the dead. Zeroing in today on the cross and next week, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And open our ears, Lord, that we would hear what you would have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Now, several years ago, our youngest daughter, Sophia's stock answer to any Bible question was this, Jesus died on the cross. In fact, her answer to many questions was, Jesus died on the cross. But you can't go wrong sticking with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross-centered life is the only fruitful life for a Christ follower. But, as we all know, it is not the only kind of life Christ's followers live. Paul was writing to a group of people struggling to live what they believed. They lived in a godless place where there were pressures inside and outside of the church to deny Christ. They found it difficult to break with their old, selfish, immoral, pagan lifestyles, and it showed in the church. There was carnality, there was immaturity, there was infighting and other sin issues percolating that showed and threatened to undo their fellowship as well as their witness. And now on the heels of a discussion of spiritual gifts, Paul launches into the defense of the foundations of the faith. The cross and the resurrection are the best defense against godlessness and sinful rebellion. What we're going to do today is basically dissect verse 3. Pretty much one verse. We'll look at a few others, but we're going to zero in on verse 3. And then we're going to look at three questions. What did the cross reveal? What did the cross accomplish? And what does the cross require of us? That's where we're going today. But let's start in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Notice first that this verse starts with the word for. There is a cause. It is tied to the previous verses. Verses 1 and 2, which we read. Where Paul says, I am making known to you, brothers, the gospel that I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. And then he says, by which, by this gospel, also you are saved. Literally, it's you are being saved. It indicates a continual action being performed on these believers by God himself. And he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, to no purpose, that if the denial of the resurrection continued, it would, and carried out to its logical conclusion, would show that their belief was fruitless. And Paul, in verse 3, makes a solemn statement. He is calling their minds back to the gospel. He drew their attention to it. It was a message they had heard, they had understood, they had believed, they knew it. But he reminded them of what they already knew. It's like Eugene Peterson says of preaching, it is a ministry of reminding. Reminding people of who they are and who God is and what He says and what He wants and what He has done. Paul says, I delivered to you. He he passed on something and that something was authoritative teaching. It was the gospel. And the news was classified as top priority Because he said it is of first importance. I delivered to you as of first priority. He's saying this is important. You need to get this. You've got to grasp this message. You've got to grasp its full implications for your lives. This is not just top shelf stuff. This is the very, very best of the very, very best stuff. It is the foremost point, Paul is saying. The cross. The cross in Paul's mind was of primary importance. And the reason why is because the cross in God's mind is of primary importance. Paul says that he delivered what he also received. And it was passed on to him personally by the Lord Jesus Christ himself by special revelation. And we can't give others what we have not received ourselves. And Paul had received this, and so he delivered this. And the news that he delivered concerned Christ. Christ means anointed one. To be anointed meant that you were set apart by God for a special task. The Jews were looking for the Messiah who would accomplish God's purposes for his people. And Jesus is clearly identified in Scripture as the one, as the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus shows up at the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stands up to read. They hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he turns to the place that says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And when he was done, he closed the scroll, handed it back, and then he says, today in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. He's the Messiah. The Christ. Now Paul says that Christ did something. Paul says that Christ died. He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. And his death was purposeful. It was planned before the world began. He meant to do it. The scriptures tell us that it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ died for our sins and that Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. That's why he came. And Paul says that Jesus died for something, because of something. And he died because of our sins. What we were guilty of, what we would be held accountable for. What alienated us from God. What caused our hostility toward him. We stood condemned. We stood in, in deserving of God's wrath. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5 tells us that Jesus appeared to take away sins. And that in him there is no sin. The sinless Savior came to die for our sins. 1 Peter 2 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were continually strained like sheep. And now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's spoken to believers. And Paul says that Christ dying for our sins was done in accordance with, or in according to, in agreement with, the scriptures. Now think with me for a moment. At that time, A.D. 55 or so, the New Testament hadn't all been written yet. He is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And as a whole, they foretold the truth concerning Jesus. But you look through the entire Old Testament and you will not find the exact words, Christ died for our sins. But you will find that message that Jesus would do what he did, that they had as their entire message, their most important news, that Christ would die for our sins. And it's interesting to note that the word of God was the authority that Paul claims as the source of the information. He puts the testimony of scripture above that of eyewitnesses that he could have claimed who saw the Lord after his resurrection. He is, he is pointing to Old Testament scriptures such as Psalm 22, which starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 7, All who seek me mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Verse 16, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Paul is referring to scriptures such as Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. The New Testament also refers to the Old Testament, notably Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection, two men are walking, going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking to each other about what had happened, Jesus himself came up to them and began to walk with them, and they did not recognize him. And at one point, here is what Jesus said O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures that concerned him, that were about him. Moses. John chapter 3 and verse 14 says that Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now Paul is making this statement. And there is urgency in this statement. It's like someone running up to you with, with big news. You've you got to hear this. It's like one of your kids tugging on you over and over again. Mommy, Daddy, I've I got to tell you something. There is urgency in what Paul is saying. And, and what he is giving is a statement of faith. Paul is giving a statement of belief, which probably existed back then, would have been asked of candidates who were going to be baptized. It's like the testimony that people give here when we observe believers' baptism. But what verse 3 is, is a counterattack. It's a counterattack on false teaching and wrong belief. It's a biblical missile aimed at anything that would twist the scriptures. 
and deter people from holding firmly to the faith that was delivered once for all. Many, many people deny the cross. Many, many people deny the resurrection. They say it never happened. That it has no bearing on anything. So they mock the Bible. One British atheist recently published a book that he entitled The Good Book. Now that, 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 that name is usually referred, uh, uh, saved for the Bible. But he called this The Good Book and it's a humanist Bible with absolutely no mention of God whatsoever. It's blasphemous. Atheist Christopher Hitchens, he recently actually interestingly praised the king james bible at its 400 year anniversary but only because he regards it as good literature and nothing more in fact consistent with his unwavering unbelief here's a man in stage four esophageal cancer and here's what he said religion is man-made with inky human fingerprints all over its supposedly inspired and unalterable texts. If he does not repent, he's going to take a lot of people to hell with him. Here is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15.3. The word of God, which is inerrant and infallible. There is no error. There is no falsehood. And it was given and preserved by God himself. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. So we must hold firmly to the truth and not swerve from it. The cross is central. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. He also said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures is a profound statement. It is a statement of our Savior's substitutionary death as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And interestingly, all four Gospels give a lot of time and a lot of space to the crucifixion. It shows us how much that uh, they had as a priority the first Christians as they shared the Gospel cross was central so now the three questions number one what did the cross reveal what did it show well the cross revealed God's glory in all his attributes at the cross all of God's attributes are on wonderful display most notably God's love That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What else is on display? God's justice. God's justice where he he satisfied his own wrath against sin. And God's grace. Right here in this passage in verse 10. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. It was successful. It was purposeful. 
God's power is also on display. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says that the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God. God's righteousness is also on display at the cross. Romans chapter 3 speaks of mankind's sin and God's righteousness revealed. Romans 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The idea of what the cross revealed is that God glorifies himself in providing salvation to all who believe. Second question. So what did the cross accomplish? What did the cross gain? What did it accomplish? It accomplished God's merciful redemption of the spiritually dead who couldn't help themselves. We were dead in sin. While we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. And at the cross, Christ did something. Christ paid for sin at the cross. There was a legal atonement made, a substitutionary atonement. That is the central meaning of the cross. Paul says, God put Jesus forth on the cross as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be smitten of God. And Isaiah said that God himself gave Jesus as an offering for sin. Don't miss this central meaning of the cross. There was a debt to be paid. We were sentenced to death due to our sin. Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God by enduring the punishment that our sins deserved. And Jesus suffered what God required. And at the cross, Jesus purchased a people who were lost in sin. He bought their freedom. And by the way, sin was no little problem. This was not just a a little mistake that you could correct. This was a big problem. It's known as our total depravity. It's a consequence of the fall. That every person is enslaved to sin. That no one by nature will love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength but they will serve their own interests. That even if every circumstance of life was in his favor, man without God would do nothing but destroy himself. That his religion and his good works would be destructive because they would come from his own imagination, his own mind, his own desires, his own understanding. Some call it radical depravity. It's a good way to put it. Radical depravity. Others call it radical corruption. Some say we are rebels without a cause. However you say it, we are in desperate need of a Savior. And there is no difference between anyone with regard to the guilt of sin. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And those who believe are justified as a gift by God's grace. Jesus at the cross secured forgiveness of sin for all who believe. 
Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 tells us, there is no forgiveness. It isn't going to happen unless a blood was shed. And Christ's blood was shed. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy place. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, which, by the way, priest after priest after priest offered year after year after year. And it only lasted a little while. It wasn't final. It wasn't decisive. But Jesus, it says, entered by means of his own blood, the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, and thereby securing an eternal redemption. That's what happened at the cross. John Piper said, the death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God and all the while upholds and demonstrates the righteousness of God. Bottom line is that our works have absolutely no bearing on salvation, that all who believe are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ and nothing else. So the last question is important. What does the cross require of us? Bottom line response to the cross of Christ, death to self. Death to self. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, you want to follow me? Then deny yourself. Let him deny himself. That means disown yourself. That means repudiate yourself. That means reject all your sinful desires and take up his cross and follow me, Jesus says. Galatians 5.24 tells us that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion is obviously painful. We know that Christ, in the process of going to the cross, yielded himself to the will of the Father. And so must we. Jesus, we know from Philippians 2, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. We must humble ourselves to the point of becoming obedient to death to our desires, death to ourselves. That song we sang, Isaac Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Contempt on my pride. See, in God's economy, death is the way to life. Jesus said, Luke 9, 4, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Milton Vincent wrote this, the gospel is not simply the story of Christ and him crucified. It is also the story of my own crucifixion. That's what it meant for Paul. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 6.14, he said, Far be it from me that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The nugget there is that the sinless Son of God died selflessly for our sin so that we would die to our sinful selves and live to God. 
Romans 6 and verse 6 supports this idea. Knowing this, it says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the fact that God is more committed to you dying to yourself than you are. That God is more interested in you dying to yourself than you are. And he will give you ample opportunities every single day that you live to die to yourself. To choose the harder way. And you, by the way, can expect daily chances to say no to yourself. The most painful thing to do. Because dying to self implies living to God. It implies living under the cross. That's why Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And Jesus did this. The sinless son of God died selflessly for our sins to the end that we could freely praise God for his matchless grace. That we could exalt Christ, that we could live a life of worship that we could humbly respond to God's love in Christ in Christ-centered, cross-focused, word-saturated, spirit-enabled living, daily, praising God for the glory of His grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. But it doesn't take any of us very long to notice we have a huge problem with that. And our huge problem, the glaring problem, is the very thing that Jesus died for. That's standing in the way. Our sin, which Jesus died for, blocks praise. I mean, we're, we say it often and we ought to remember it often. We are saved from sin's power and penalty. Meaning we don't have to sin. Meaning that we can choose to live moment by moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we know we, we make those other choices all the time. And because Jesus took what our sins deserved, we won't have to pay that price ever. But here's the deal. We have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. And so we feel sin's effects. We feel sin's misery. We we get messed up by sin, the very thing that Jesus died for. Here's what the cross does. The cross exposes us to our true selves. Where we cannot hide. Where we cannot pretend. It's like we're all naked in the sight of God. The cross is not a decoration. The cross is a declaration of our need for Jesus. Don't cozy up to sin. Embrace the cross in all its fullness. 
And, and, and recognizing the depths of your sin, by the way, helps you appreciate the heights of God's grace. Because every one of us experiences an ebb and flow of praising and sinning. Getting fresh glimpses of our sinfulness and need for Jesus. And then we go through, believers go through, the God-giving, humbling process of confessing our sins, repenting of them, turning from them to God, and, and in turn, praising God once again. And that happens over and over again in God's process of sanctifying us of setting us apart of making us holy God is glorified as we confess and repent of sin and, and the sinless son of God dying for our sins also opens up another opportunity to engage others with the gospel think about it Paul delivered the gospel to a group of people living in a specific place Corinth in this sitting, setting in first century and we're here in orange california some two thousand years later getting the same message that paul gave to the corinthians that's amazing that god chose paul to share the news and god sends us to share the news with all the people in our spheres of influence in our households first and foremost leading and shepherding our little flocks in some people's case big flocks but leading our flocks to Christ and with our fellow workers in Christ are your teammates in Christ Grace Church is a big team of followers of Christ and what does every good sports coach say to their team talk to each other help each other when you're out there that's what we need to be doing talking to each other about the glorious truths of the gospel because we need to be reminded every single day and how about your friends Believers and unbelievers alike. Saved and unsaved. They need to hear and see in your life the difference that Jesus makes. And how about your neighbors? Bring the gospel to those who you live nearby. How about your coworkers or your fellow students? Show and share the gospel with people you associate with, though you may be diametrically opposed in worldview. And let the gospel drive the excellent way in which you work and do what God gives you to do. And how about engaging total strangers with the gospel? Or how about engaging enemies with the gospel? Now I have said that, I was convicted of this this week, I have said this often, even though I like it, I have said, cold turkey evangelism doesn't work. But who am I to stipulate how God wants to get the message out? Don't rob yourself or anyone else the possible joy of initiating significant interactions for the gospel's sake. Be like Philip in Acts chapter 8, ready to obey God and to, to follow his leading wherever the opportunity arose as God's Spirit gave the opportunity. And engage yourself with the gospel. Engage yourself. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once asked this question. Do you realize most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Tell yourself the truth 
instead of all those lies you tell yourself about yourself. And by the way, it benefits yourself and, and those you are able to help. That discouraged believer who, who needs once again to hear the glorious truths of the gospel. That, that unbeliever at the end of their rope that, that needs to hear of the hope that we have that's an anchor for our souls. And in that, you trust God to do whatever he wants with the gospel, whatever he wants with your life, whatever he wants in the world. That you're, you're plugged into Jesus by faith and, and, and tuned in to the word by grace. And yeah, plenty of people are tempted to say that the cross has absolutely no relevance for today. And they're so wrong. Some people will say we've gotten so past that elemental teaching. But it is to our detriment. It is to our downfall. We must reclaim this central truth as the most relevant of truths. Have you ever considered this? We are the package that God most often sends the gospel out in. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for how good you are. Thank you, Lord, that as we are that packaging for the gospel, that when we go out these doors, we're taking it with us. We pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to guard through the Holy Spirit that indwells believers the good treasure that you have entrusted to us. We, we are well aware, Lord, that, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And it's all because the excellency of the power may be of you and not of us. We are well aware that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is your power. And we praise you for that, Lord God. Amen. was lost